Well, let's come again to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. And gracious God, we come before you to thank you for your wonderful word, praying that you might guide us through this a little story, that we might learn something and trust you more. Pray all the more that your word would go forth in power and strength for the salvation of many. We ask it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have to admit that at times some of the stories recorded in the Bible at first glance seem a little bit odd. And this one in particular that we're looking at this morning appears a little bit way out, to be frank, that it seems a little bit hard to believe. Not that you or I have a problem in believing that God could perform such a miracle as we've read about this morning. But the problem is more why would he do such a bizarre thing as make an axe head float? What's the point of that? Well, this morning's story of Elisha and the floating axe head is one that you might well scratch your head about. Hopefully you can see how the healing of Naaman demonstrated something of God's compassion or the multiplying of the loaves demonstrated something of his provision, or the restoration of the woman's son to life again demonstrated something of his mercy. But throwing a stick in a river in order to retrieve an amateur builder's chopping tool, and that tool defied all the laws of gravity and floated? You might expect to find such a story in a Harry Potter tale, rather than the scriptures. Well, hopefully those of you who've been listening over the last few weeks will have noticed that two important principles have been governing our approach to these amazing stories about Elisha in two kings. The first is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past, that is the Old Testament scriptures, was written to teach us, so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So the story of the prophet and the floating axe head, says Paul, was written with you and me in mind. The second principle comes from what Jesus said in John 5.39, when challenging the Jewish religious establishment because of their lack of belief in him. He said to them, You diligently study the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, because you think that by them you possess life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Well, that is true of this story as well. As we've seen, Elisha is a living signpost pointing to Jesus, the new Elisha, one greater than Elisha. So in some way, what we see here in the action of the prophet is something of the coming action of God in Jesus. The story is divided into two parts, and then we'll seek to apply it. First of all, note the influence of the prophet. Verse 1 says, The company of the prophet said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to live. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? 
And he said, I will. And he went with them. Again, let's seek to remember the context in which this story is taking place. It's set against the backdrop of national apostasy and religious decline. The majority in Israel have thrown in their lot with the pagan worship of Baal. Spiritually and morally, it's the pits. And yet in spite of all that, and maybe because of all that, God had been steadily at work through his servant Elisha, raising up more and more men for the ministry. You see, the theological college has started to be outgrown. It's too small. And so the students go to the head principal and suggest this extensive building program. And he agrees. And off they go, with the proviso that he goes with them. Now, you cannot deny the amazing influence that Elisha has been having. If, at the end of the day, the ministry has been multiplied to such an extent that there isn't enough space. Do you see what is possible when the man of God with the word of God is in your midst? If there were such things as sociologists around at the time of Elisha, and you ask them what hope they thought there was for this nation which had sold out to greed and superstition, I guess they would have said, not much hope. And if you take God out of the reckoning, of course they would be right. And as we look at our situation, now what do we see and what would be our prognosis? Has to be admitted that it is not all that encouraging. For a start, there's an overall decline in the numbers attending church. Ever since restrictions have allowed church attendance, numbers have dropped 20 to 40% across the world. Also now, as in the days of Elisha, there are men in prominent positions within the religious establishment who are seeking to undermine the truth that supposedly our country believes. And we find ourselves surrounded by a society which is keen on helping them move further away from it. And as our society as a whole drifts further and further away from its Christian moorings, the cry which goes up from many of God's people is, How long, O Lord? But having said that, two other things also need to be recognised. One is that, by and large, the followers of the one true God have always been in a minority. There has never really been a golden age of religion. If there ever has been a time of blessing, as for example during the Reformation, that's rare and exceptional, not the norm. And we need to recognise that so that we can have some realism injected into our thinking and not become so easily discouraged because the going is hard. What we see here in Israel in Elisha's time is sadly the norm for societies. In 1606, Nicholas Bound observed that people knew more about Robin Hood than they did about stories from the Bible. Someone in 1731 said, There is no religion in England. If religion is spoken of, everyone laughs. What's changed? So don't get disillusioned because times are hard or if the church isn't packed to the rafters. God is at work raising up his servants to ensure that his word is not lost and the gospel is sent out. Here again, 
we see Elisha being a forerunner of Jesus. He did not believe in the one-man band. The attitude, only I can do it and do it well, is useless for the extension of the kingdom. That's why he has a college of prophets gathered round him. And here we see a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. When God incarnate walked this earth, he didn't try to go it alone either. He called around himself a group of twelve disciples, the word literally meaning learners or students. And that was expanded to seventy. He taught them, he modelled ministry for them, and then he sent them out in the power of the Spirit to do it themselves. But there's another thing of importance here in verse 3, when this young man says to Elisha, Please won't you come with your servants? Here's the open secret to church health and to revival. It's not techniques and plans and strategies that make the difference. It's the presence of the Lord that makes the difference. As the psalmist writes, If the Lord does not build the house, his servants labour in vain. It sounds so basic, so fundamental, that we would never forget it, but we do forget it. We forget it when we put our confidence in our own abilities, our own planning, our own music, our own preaching, that we can leave the Lord Jesus out of the picture altogether. The trap we can face is that we can be so busy thinking that we are working for him that we end up neglecting him altogether. And so I say to you, As I say to myself, never be so busy doing the Lord's work that you neglect him. Wouldn't it be terrible if at the end of it all we come before him and say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, we did that. And he turns around and says, yes, but I never knew you. So secondly, in verses two to six, let's note the miracle of the prophet. The text goes on. So they journeyed on to the Jordan and began to cut down trees to prepare these new extensions. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And the man reached out his hand and took it. Now what's the point of all that? A young prophet loses his axe head in the river. Hardly sounds like a major crisis in life. And if you think that would be a major crisis in your life, then I'd like to know just what sort of things you deal with every day. Losing an axe head for many people would be no big deal given that Bunnings is almost always open. Maybe not in lockdown. But that was not the situation here. There were no hardware shops just down the road. What is more, iron was very expensive. That's why it's mentioned as an iron axe head. Iron was a rare commodity in ancient Israel. And 3,000 years ago during the Iron Age, a metal tool was a thing of great value. It would have been handcrafted from a valuable resource. This wasn't just a nuisance. This was a disaster. I asked Mr Google to show me pictures of 3,000-year-old axes, and while there wasn't a lot of pictures, a lot of them had the axe head simply lashed to the handle. 
so you can probably understand how the lashing might come loose and allowed the axe head to be lost. And it wasn't a matter of carelessness. This was obviously something that was a semi-regular occurrence with these axes. Must have been a design flaw. So maybe it was that the axe head was not lost because the student was careless, but because he was careful. He had been standing and working in such a way that if the head came off his axe, it would land in the river and not on one of his friends on the land. Maybe he simply misjudged how far it would fly. Either way, the loss of the axe was going to cost this student profit dearly, hence the cry, it was borrowed, and thus losing an iron axe head might lead to significant debt. If he cannot pay, the debtor may have to enter debt slavery until he can restore the cost of the borrowed item. But then the text notes these facts also about the recovery of the axe head. The fact that Elisha had to ask where it had been lost was probably indicative of the visibility or the depth of the water. But it was also asking the man who lost the axe to be a partner in the solution and to own the problem. And what of that solution? Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water where the man indicated the axe was lost. One commentator suggested here this was to transfer the ability of the wood to float into the axe head. Seriously? It's a little bizarre. You can also imagine the conversation. What floats? Wood. What else? Bread? Apples? Oil? Ducks? And then because they didn't have a duck, they threw in a piece of wood. Sometimes I think people overthink things. I wonder if Elisha asked, where did you lose the axe? And the student pointed and said, over there. And so Elisha threw in the stick and said, about there? I also suspect that if the axe head was visible and in shallow water, then he would have told the student to go and get it. So when he knew the where, then Elisha was able to throw the stick, which did the how. And the iron axe head floated back to the surface. And that's not something that happens every day. Even better is the King James Version here, which reads, And the man of God said, Where fill it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. As cool as a floating axe head is, a swimming axe head, well, that's even cooler. From this perspective, then, Elisha's miracle is no trivial demonstration of power. In recovering this axe head, the prophet delivered the young man from indebtedness and potentially slavery, as he delivered the widow in chapter 4. It was no mere party trick, but a real godsend for this young man in prophet college, who for more than a moment or two must have wondered what his future held especially when he was out doing the right thing for God, doing it for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God, but having this event come along and put all that on hold. See, hard times come for God's people on both counts. When we don't obey the Lord and he disciplines us, and then even when we do. Have you noticed that when God's work seems to be going well, and you're involved in serving him, 
that the unexpected setback can knock you sideways, whether it's a car crash, a big bill for a leaky roof, a failed exam, unhelpful criticism, whatever form it comes in, and it catches you unprepared and brings everything to a halt. The axe head is now in the river. It wasn't meant to be, but as you watch it sink, something rises within you, one of the devil's tools called discouragement. Does that happen to you? Are you discouraged? But what takes place next points us to a reassuring truth, that in the midst of all the setbacks and discouraging events, God proves that he hasn't left us, that he is concerned even about the small and seemingly insignificant matters that can and do so easily cause us that discouragement. Because it was important to one of his children, it was important to the Lord. The distinction we make between the big issues and the little issues of life is not one that God makes. The distinction we make between the sacred and the secular is not one that God makes. Everything is of concern to God. The hairs on our head, the tiny sparrow, the lost keys, wallet or phone, the injured car, the failed exam, the lost axe head at the bottom of the river. They all come under his lordship. And so does this. The prophet who is chopping down trees for the building is just as much serving God by doing that as when he is declaring God's word to God's people. We say that again. The prophet who is chopping down trees for the building is just as much serving God by doing that as when he is declaring God's word to God's people. Let that sink in a bit, if you can, and also let this sink in too. That the miraculous floating of the axe head not only speaks about God's care over every twist and turn of our lives, but also his desire to provide. It's not often that the provision will be as dramatic as this event, or the day Jesus found the temple tax in a fish's mouth, or the day he turned a little boy's lunch into a crowd picnic. But even if it is still on a smaller scale, isn't it still provision? And haven't we seen through these stories concerning Elisha and all the things he has done that God has expressed over and over a real willingness to provide? The healing of the waters, the victory for the army, the jars of oil for the widow, the bread for the main meal, the flour in the pot, healing for Naaman, a rescued axe head for the prophet. But there's another thing to note. Did you notice that the prophet had to do something himself? When the angel rescued Peter from jail in Acts 12, the angel didn't put Peter's sandals on for him. And here Elisha made the axe head float, but he still said to the young prophet, lift it out. Elisha did what God had gifted him to do, but the man himself had to reach out and get the axe head. This shows us that while God does his bit, he still expects us to do ours. Believing that God is sovereign over all things 
does not mean that we become passive fatalists and sit back and do nothing about anything. We should always keep in mind that while God can and does do what only he can do, he also wants us to do what we can do. Gospel ministry is like that. If we aim and pray to see people come to Christ, then not only do we have to pray and work for it, but we also have to let them know the gospel which can save them. What God does and what we do work together according to his plans and purposes that are so often hidden from us. Well, what do we learn from this strange little event? Well, I think we all realise that there are things in our lives that have been lost, not just keys and wallets, but lost innocence and lost opportunities. Things that we look back upon and wish we could do it over. You know, those words that too often get used, if only, or I wish I had, or maybe even more disheartening, I wish I hadn't. But in the end, it's more than that. The story of the floating axe head can be viewed to be God's provision, through God's man, for God's people, that God's work, the training of more for the ministry of his word, might proceed and prosper. And in the end, that doesn't seem so far removed from matters that should be close to where we're at and what we might hope to see happen in our church through and by the grace of God. God's provision, through God's man, for God's people, that God's word might go forward. That's always something we're encouraged to pray for, especially in relation to the advancement of the gospel. See, we live in a world where invariably the axe head will sink. And that's somewhat symbolic of the way in which, amidst all the noise and all the opinions and all the news reports and all the commentary, the sound of the gospel gets drowned out. But the God who can make an axe head float can also do everything to make his word be heard. Just as Isaiah 55 says, where the Lord says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. On the basis of that, our task is to pray that the axe head might float, that he might do it again in these days, multiplying and sending forth his word. Will you do that with me? Let's pray together. We bring thanks to you, almighty, everlasting God, for your word, which tells us what we need to know. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us what we need to know and what you can do and how in this instance, when you overcame all the laws that you created concerning gravity to recover this axe head from the bottom of the river. 
Lord, sometimes we feel as though the work we do ends up at the bottom of the river. But you're able to do far more with your word than we are able to do. And we pray that we might ever look to you and pray that your word might go forward through your appointed servants, through us, that it might reach the ends of the world. Send forth your word, Lord. Send it forth. Make your glory known throughout all the earth, that all may know and see the wonder of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this and ask it in his name. Amen.